I'll break it down for you. This is a guy who talks about we're going to be a family and look out for each other. And he no insinuates se- He insinuates things. these things. And while he's saying all this, right behind him is the vehicle that he's rolled up in. And it's like a repair van <laughs> that I'm almost certain this guy's not running a repair service. I Welcome to CanCon, your Canadian content space for conversations about cannibal films. I'm Jocelyn. I'm Zachary. And today we are going to be discussing the film that inspired the whole project, which is Bones and All. You might even call this episode the main course. <laughs> That's cute, the main course. We have been building toward it, taking steps. It's been a five-course meal so far, now we're at the six. The main course. The main course. Let's talk a little bit about how our next season is going to proceed for folks who are anticipating that. So our first season, we just kind of planned for these six episodes, but um, we have been having, I think, a lot of fun, and we've had good listener engagement, and we've decided to do at least a second season. So much positive feedback. Thank you all. Yeah, thank you so much um, to listeners for sure. Um, we are going to have next week, we are going to take sort of a bit of a break from the podcast before we gear or as we gear up for season two. So there will be an episode next week, but it is going to be just like a brief reflection on how season one went. And we're going to also introduce texts for season two. So again, season two, we're going to be focusing on acts of cannibalism where someone is unknowingly fed like unknowingly fed human flesh um by a third party we have a list of uh films that we are interested in discussing that fit that topic but if you have a film title that you're really interested in hearing us discuss you think it would fit um in that that uh, season you can email us suggestions for texts at cannibalconversations at gmail.com and i will put those in the show notes as well we are always open to any recommendations because our greatest fear in life is that eventually we reach a week where we just can't find another cannibal related film to watch so <laughs> that is not our <laughs> our greatest fears that within the realm of the the world of the podcast the of that's the... sort of the zero sum Oh, yeah, and we um we are also excited for fan mail. So so far we have been getting um junk mail, promotions for stuff we don't want. I really love that our like social folder on Gmail is mostly um invitations for different dating apps. It's like our our profile for email is like a non person. It is the podcast, so it's called Cannibal Conversations is like the name of the of the profile, um, and one spam mail pretending to be Gaddafi's daughter. Yeah, Muammar Gaddafi's daughter uh, needed money to establish, like, a uh, sustainable life in North America. Needed a bank account to deposit the money that she already has in Yeah, because of scams. Presumably it's all in burlap sacks with dollar signs on it and it's pretend spam email anyway let's talk about the film i'm so excited this film is it's a cannibal film there are a couple of scenes that are pretty hard 
to watch, mostly because of the sound effects, I think. Um, but it's also a really beautiful film. Um, it's beautiful in the things that it questions and thinks about. Um, it's beautiful in how it is styled and shot. It is just like beautiful on the screen. Um, yeah. So Zach, what's the, what is the plot of Bones and All? such a tactile film that it seems odd to try to describe what actually happens outside of just like talking about chewing noises and stuff. But, uh, Marin is a young cannibal, uh, like the band Fine Young Cannibals. And, uh, her father has been protecting her and keeping her from being exposed as a cannibal and like all the societal punishments that would presumably go along with that. Eventually, the father, for reasons that are both self-evident and kind of mysterious, decides he can no longer be her support system, and he takes off on the road. She is now left to fend for herself. She goes looking for her mother, whose name she has on a birth certificate. Name, and all she has is her... um mother's name and this the town that she was born in is on yeah, the birth certificate. place of birth okay and along the way she meets lee who is has the same affliction as her and they uh kind of go on the road together embark on like kind of a, a a young romance but he's not the only person she has encountered she's also encountered sullivan who goes by sully who is a much more nefarious kind of, uh, he's, he's been eating people for a long, long time. And we gather that he's had to pay a big psychological toll for this. He's become very, uh, both very crafty at like eluding attention to his eating of people, but also he's developed a lot of rituals and behaviors around how he eats people, which he, uh, kind of like a code of ethics that he tries to impart onto Marin, and Marin flees him, encounters Lee, and they wind up, more or less, long story short, like in a romance together, figuring out how they want to continue feeding together. Jocelyn, do you want to take us to the home stretch of the film? <laughs> yeah, I think we should kind of save the ending for the ending. If you've seen the film, not not like to keep it as a surprise, but because it's kind of hard to talk about without talking about um, kind of the, yeah, the rituals that people develop. So it's very much a film about figuring out how to be in the world in this particular case how to be in the world as cannibals um but i think cannibalism stands in for like i think we can map um cannibalism onto various kinds of difference like real difference in the world um i think the filmmaker wants us to think about queerness is probably one of the things but i think that you could probably map cannibalism on for, like, lots of other, like, feet, like, literally just feeling like an outsider. Um, and, and we'll talk about how that works. What does it mean to choose something violent and taboo, um, 
as a stand-in for various kinds of otherness, when you are on the side of, of those who are kind of in the category of other and very like sympathetic or empathetic to some of the folks in that category. And I think the film encourages us to think about like there's different examples of how to embody that space of otherness according to an ethics, um, according to sets of rules. There are some ways that are offered up as being um, sort of positive and um, some others that are kind of held up as being like really scary and negative. Um, so I think we, we need to unpack that for sure. I have just recently read the book that it's based on, and the book is very beautiful. I highly recommend it. I'm so bad with names. I cannot remember um, the name of the author, but I will put that in the show notes for folks who are interested. Same title, though. Same title, Bones and All. A bunch of stuff is changed from the book to the film, so I'm going to try to um, not talk about the book in this episode. Not because the book is not amazing. Like I said, it's a really great read. It's also thinking about... Um, it's thinking about cannibalism for sure in slightly different ways than the film is. I think there's really one place where it will, will bring up the book. Um, I'm excited maybe one day to do a season where we talk about just cannibalism um, as it translates like from from uh, written context to film. So texts that are like novels or written uh, texts first and then get translated onto screen. Um Excuse me. Uh, in this house, we don't believe the book is always better. It is just always different. So, um, yeah. They're certainly never the same. They're certainly never the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't like. I don't like. There's so many places to jump off into this text that I think we should go chronologically, which is already a little bit hard. So one of the things that happened after Marin's dad leaves is he leaves her. Um, an envelope with some money, her birth certificate, and an audio recording that she listens to and kind of fits and starts um, through the film. So we get a looking backward through the audio. We get a bit of her history that she um, at one point says, you know, she says, I'm new to this. Lee responds, no one our age is new to this. Um, and her answer to that is, well, I'm new to remembering it. So the, the audio tape gives us some of her history and kind of helps her do some of that remembering um, as we move forward with the plot. So um, let's, yeah, let's, I guess, start with, let's start with what happens in those opening scenes. So Marin doesn't, we're led to believe, doesn't know she's a cannibal. Um doesn't remember being a cannibal, doesn't know that that's why her uh, her and her dad never stay anywhere for long. She's repressed those memories. I talked to my students today just about the return of the repressed. So when we repress, it doesn't mean that we, um, we don't ever, it's not like pouring something down a drain and flushing it away. It's like shoving it into a corner. It is still there. No matter how much you'd want to not look at it or think about it, it is still in there. Um, so she has repressed her memories of cannibalism. Um, they're in the back of her, in her unconscious, waiting for her to discover them again. She doesn't know why her father, uh, she and her father have been moving so often. Um, and then she gets invited to a sleepover. And what happens? Yeah, well, I just, uh, slightly different interpretation. There's, 
I wouldn't say that she's completely forgotten or unaware. Like when she essentially she goes to a sleepover with some friends, sneaks out of the house because her door, her bedroom door is locked from the outside, but she gets out a window. And as her and her friends are doing their nails, one she's inspecting uh the the uh nail nail job? No. What do you call it? Well, she's in, her friend is showing. I don't know. Nail job is not. That, that <laughs> it sounds, sounds rude. Yeah. Whatever. Her friend is showing how cool her painted nails. Her look. manicure. Her manicure and and uh, and Marin cannot resist and bites off her fingers and eats them, uh, and then flees the scene as the other friends are panicking, understandably, and comes upon her father. But her father says something to the extent of like, "Oh no, you didn't." Um, like, it seems like she's kind of aware that, like, this was a possibility. She just thought that she could resist it. But that's how the the return of the repressed act. Yeah, I know. I just, just I, don't, I don't think she goes to the party thinking that there's no chance she's going to eat somebody. This is, oh, that's so interesting because my reading is different. Um, my reading is that she knows that she is because she's being locked in her room, right? And she knows she has to um, take a she takes a screwdriver from a shelf as a way. Like she knows she needs to break out through the window. Presumably um, knows how to already. She has like the strategy worked out. Yeah, and she she doesn't seem to be like she understands my reading of the film is that she's not like oh my terrible abusive father is locking me in this room because he's bad that she seems to have a kind of passive like I am some kind of there's something monstrous about me that's why I'm getting locked into the room um because that's part of what she has to kind of sort out through the film is how to come to terms with this thing that is true about herself um that is not is is um uh in the world is met with horror right um yeah like that's her her internal conflict all the way through and she meets different people who do it different ways and they kind of offer her up different possibilities of ways of doing the thing um and she accepts some and rejects others and so on um so my reading is that she knows there's something monstrous about herself um but not exactly what, and then goes to the store or goes to the story. Excuse me, goes to the sleepover, um, and this is this is right off the bat. We get some of the framing of queerness, I think, right away, which is um, the decision to set the film in the eighties during um, the AIDS panic is not in the film at all. But it's haunting the film the way that that history haunts um, haunts us, haunts our texts, haunts the 80s in America, I don't think you can, I do not, unless you are very, very purposefully, um, setting up a text in, like, an alternate, although we talked about that, didn't we, whether it was maybe an alternate America that the, the, the Luca Guadagnino is imagining the first time we watched it as a possibility? Yeah, we discussed whether certain, I mean, the band Kiss exists, so it's not so unspecific Mm. that we don't have, like, certain proper names uh i think what were we we were talking last when we viewed it most recently we were discussing whether walmart exists in this world or not i think we were trying to determine whether walmart even existed in the 80s 80s, or not but we discussed that 
even if it did, it may not exist in this film. Um, and there, there, because we're talking also about there's TV footage um, commenting on um, commenting on contemporary American politics, setting setting it in a world um, that's like a mirror of our world, I guess, rather than an alternate. Yeah, um, it's an alternate kind of history. I think part of it too, and and it's one of like the loneliest feeling movies I can think of. Um, so much of the film takes place in small towns and like, uh, you know, country prairie roads and big wide open expanses that aside from the odd time that we see like one of the books that Sully's reading or again, Lee, uh, puts on a kiss record at one point. What Marin does all our reading too. Marin, sorry. Yeah. yeah, No, but they're both, they're both, both, yeah. Yeah. Readers and we see what they read outside of some of like the like artistic cultural artifacts of the time. And even then they, they hardly date the film. Uh, like the books are mostly older. Um, so it's really, it's through those news broadcasts and like the odd glimpse of television that we really set the, the, uh, time period as the eighties, I suppose. Oh my goodness. Our cat has just decided he's going to come in for our, He's, he's going to weigh come. in. He's hungry. We'll see if both of our animals have to be formally disinvited from recording. Um, so yeah, the film is set in the 80s, where the book uh, is set in the 90s, and that is obviously a choice. Um, purposeful choice, as artistic choices always are. Um, and in that first scene where Marin can't help but eat the finger of one of her schoolmates, it's very, um, like, it's quite erotic up until you realize that she's biting the finger off and not essentially just sucking on it. Like, she, um, the way she looks at her friend, the way she brings the finger to her mouth, um, the eating of the finger is, I think, at first it's an erotic scene. Like, there's a possibility of it being an erotic scene for everybody, Yes. Involved, and then when Marin starts biting down on the finger, it's still a somewhat erotic scene for her. And because eating is tied up with eroticism in the film and sexuality, there's almost a sense of um, whatever Marin knows or doesn't know about her monstrous nature in going to this, and sneaking out and going to the sleepover. Um it's almost like she's hoping some curiosity might be, she might get some answers from having time alone at night with her peers. Yeah. Um, and in an alternate world in our, our alternate universe where people still stayed up all night watching random movies on cable, you would totally be forgiven if you started watching this film and up until she bites her friend's fingers off, expected them to kiss and it'd be a, coming-of-age story about, like, a young girl's queer sexuality. Yeah, absolutely. And as we will um, see as we progress, so, ooh, um, there is one scene, there's another scene, I should say, that's explicitly queer that is bound up with eating also. Um, But even in the relationship between Marin and Lee, which is, 
romantic and filial like they form they begin to they form essentially a family unit together which will will continue to unfold how that how that happens uh, and what that looks like it's very unclear if they ever have sex or if they only kiss each other um and there's a lot of focus on like the mouth as the place where you do kissing and the place where you do eating as well um yeah, but we should we should talk about the three other cannibals that she meets. Yeah, I mean we could talk a lot about Sully. So maybe we'll just get the other two off the 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 dinner plate as it were and discuss <laughs> them in brief and then that way we have adequate time to devote to the kind of the the third part of the triangle of lead characters. I think we should start with the utopian vision that Sully seems to promise her first. Sure, where it's experience and a shared history of eating. Um, kind of, uh, not even just necessarily like survival tips, but kind of like a way to live with this as the burden on your back that you constantly crave and need to eat like to physically consume people yeah i was thinking about so i'm just gonna like attach it to narrative a little bit so people who haven't seen this can follow along she leaves her small town she and her father move he says you have three minutes to pack as much as you can and we have to move again right which we get clues earlier in the film that they have done this this is not the first time they've moved in a hurry so again it's Probably not the first time Marin has eaten someone and they've had to move um, in a hurry. Um, um, so that's kind of laid out for us. And then... Yeah, they seem to sort of know the drill. At least the father expressly has, like, a plan to get out of town and seems to be able to think on his feet, even in a panic. And has been locking her in the room and doing other... Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's He's got it kind of locked down where she seems to be waking up to this, to the, this new reality. Um, and it really hits home when he leaves. And again, she's in a different apartment and she's got the tape, the money, the birth certificate, and she decides she's going to go and try to seek out her mother. She gets a bus ticket. Um, she cannot afford a bus ticket. There's like three transfers or something, um, to get to the town where her mother was born, and she is like, how much just to, I think it's Columbus, Ohio. Uh, it doesn't really, it's the, the, the places. The film helpfully gives us little title cards as we uh, jump around states, so there's a geographic concern that yeah. the, the film has uh, as we sort of traverse a very particular American landscape. Yeah, it's the Midwest, and it's really, um, the film is, is really concerned with location and geography and landscape which i think we should um spend some time with with those ending scenes too um and so she gets to the first stop and she's kind of lost she doesn't quite know what's um uh, what to do she's in this town waiting for her transfer for her bus and she's got like an overnight um and this person shows up out of nowhere and says i came looking for you i could smell you from the yard and invites her into, says, you know, you know, you must be hungry. Invites her into a house. Turns out not to be his house. 
Um, and this is our introduction to the third main character and also villain. Eventually, we understand to be villain of the film, which is Sullivan, who goes by Sully. Um, and there's two things I want to talk about with our first instance of talking about him, which is he introduces her to the idea of smelling other eaters and he also introduces her to something that seems like a fairly a, a non-violent way to do this thing that they both have to do, right? So the idea is that it's a compulsion. Um, it is not, this is not something opposite to um, Hannibal Lecter. This is not something that they are choosing to do. It is something they have to do. They're driven to do. Um, yeah. What are your yeah, there's, I mean, there's some interesting, I mean, there's countless differences between Marin and Sully that are highlighted right from the outset, like even just in terms of his sort of, uh, he's an older man, so he has had a, roughly a lifetime to adapt to his condition, find different ways of of both, you know, honing certain skills, like the the smelling of other eaters. But um, after they eat together, which we can expand on a bit more how that happens, but uh, Sully confides in Marin and shares that he has uh, like a giant ball of hair from that he's taken from every person he's ever eaten. It's a rope. It's a wool It's band. a rope, yes. He has it rolled up and then it, it comes out into a big long rope. Um, so already we see that he's has he's invested certain he's certainly invested time and effort into certain aspects of the eating that are alien to Marin like Marin doesn't uh she seems kind of bewildered by the whole rope of hair to her it doesn't occur to her that she should be keeping you know whether you want to call them souvenirs or like some sort of remnant of people she's consumed she seems sort of repulsed by the idea or at least like some of Sullivan's advice makes sense to her like learning how to smell other eaters and smell out potential victims or sources of food um that those aspects she seems more like kind of okay like I'm a little uncomfortable but tell me more I can see how this is useful the hair, it seems superfluous, maybe. Like, this is the part of the people that she doesn't consume, so why would, you know, that they don't consume? So why why is this person she's just met continuing to carry around parts of, yeah. of a person's body, whereas for Marin it seems more about survival, and suddenly that's in question when we see that Sullivan, Sully keeps... A souvenir from each person, as it were, and it's it's really interesting um, because I think in in that kind of overarching scene that takes place in the house. So Sully invites her into the house. Um, Marin says, "Is your house? Is someone dead here?" And the idea is that he um, has developed this ability to smell when people are close to death, and there is an older woman in the house who is near death, and he is waiting for her to succumb to a natural death before he's going to eat her. This is the, the kind of utopian vision that you don't have to murder people in order to kind of scratch the itch or to fulfill, like, the need to eat. Um, 
And so there's the, the things that he is suggesting that Marin is kind of suspicious of um, are kind of in tension with what the camera is doing. So Marin is grossed out by the hair rope. Um, but she's interested in what Sully is saying, right? I think Zach, you're right on the nose there. And then while they are, while they are eating, oh, I should have looked up her name, this, this older woman. Um, oh yeah, Mrs. Something rather. Yeah, Mrs. Something. Because for Marin, it's maybe remembering the names. It's maybe her, her ritual, her way of, of remembering and, and humanizing, right? That's part of um, what the rope of hair is for Sully is it's a way to humanize and remember each person that he's eaten, um, to continue to make meaning of their lives. Um, even once they're gone, right. For, for himself, like he literally carries this reminder of each of these like distinct, discreet people with him all the time. Uh, and Marin again is grossed up by the rope, but as they are eating, which happens before we are introduced to the rope, uh, of hair, um, which is itself, like, by definition, an abject object, right? Like, hair is one of the, one of the, is it me, is it not me, like, literal objection, like, a la Julia Kristeva, which we will not, that's not, um, that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. We could talk about that, the rest <laughs> of the thing. Sure. Um, but as they are eating this woman once she dies, uh, it's such an interesting scene because it's got these really, really, like, hard-to-listen-to sounds of eating. Like, it's really gross, but there's this kind of pretty music underneath, and the camera is taking us not into the spectacle of this eating that's happening, but is looking at, like, images of her and her family, and it's, like, like images are really... Um, uh, the camera lingers on the images as a way of making her life matter. And we see that happen a few times. That also happens with images of Marin's mother uh, later when she seeks out the grandmother. Um, and I think there's a third time. But in, in, in any case, right, there's this idea, uh, the film kind of questions, how do we continue to make these lives um, the lives of people who are sort of absent us in the various ways meaningful? Which is super interesting, because, again, to kind of jump around, when we later learn about Lee having eaten his father, who's expressly a bad man, and Lee's in his head recounting that incident, we don't get images of the father as he was, as, like, a healthy, you know, maybe whatever his good qualities were, he's actually absent from them. We see Lee uh, wildly bashing something with a tire iron like images of murder and bloodshed we hear like the sound of eating as it happened when he consumed his father but we don't have the same kind of uh same kind of sanitized flashbacks as we do with the photographs on the wall of the woman that Marin and sully eat together yeah so there's kind of that dichotomy between um there's discussions in the film about Lee shouldn't feel guilt for eating his father because sooner or later his father was going to seriously harm or kill someone in the family, most likely. So there's also this kind of a sense of like a dichotomy between sort of paying your due respects to someone you're eating out of necessity and someone that 
you're eating both out of your necessity to eat people, but also the sudden absence of that person uh, relieves other people of harm. Yeah, and that's part of, um, there's like sort of a few different kind of moralities that the film offers up, and that's part of the one that Lee kind of clings to. So for Sully, there is, and, and we later become suspicious of how much he holds to this, um, but I think you and I talked about it on our on our third viewing of the film that um, perhaps part of what Sully is looking for in um, kind of finding Marin and hoping that Marin will be almost a disciple of his is um, that she can hold him to account um, and that they can they can go about this life and choose not to again, to murder or kill people, but to, to only eat people once they've died a natural death. This is certainly the way of being that he is very purposefully trying to mentor her into or offers her up, offers up to her. Um, and he also offers her the lesson that that um, eaters can be just as bad and just as dangerous to each other. Uh, at the same time, he says, but you can belong with me. So we start to see right at the beginning um, um, it's not hypocritical, but it's it's two truths that, that don't... Contradictory. Contradictory, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, contradictions in Sully right away. Um, but there's a real, I think, hopefulness in what he tries to offer her. Um, I was thinking about the smelling. Smelling is a really big thing. So eaters can smell each other um, as well as things like death and and of course they smell humans differently than non-eaters smell humans um but what they identify when they smell each other is each other as eaters um and i was thinking about that as like queer coding also different forms of like being able to um being able to there's there's some stuff about like misogyny and men feeling like they're owed women's time that we'll get to when we get to, um, when we get to the, uh, end of the film. But, um, the, the metaphor of standing in for queerness. Um, gaydar. Gaydar. Yeah. Or, yeah. or, and, and yeah, being able to spot each other and know each other. And there's a question too the way that they describe it the the conflict between Marin and Sully is knowing one another, right? Like really, really knowing something about each other that, um, yeah, that is, I think supposed to be more than just the truth that they are cannibals, but it's, yeah, it's like seeing beyond the surface, right? It's something that's really um, key and important for both of them. Yeah. And a certain amount of accountability to one another, um, one of the big breaking points in Sully and Marin's like friendship that never was, as it were, is uh, Sully feeling deeply hurt and wounded that he confided so much in Marin, and it wasn't necessarily uh, not only was it not reciprocated, but it wasn't necessarily something that Marin wanted. So there's this kind of presumptuous expectation and possibly with really uh dire results where whereas with Marin and Lee it's very gradual and they're both kind of you know Marin initiates the friendship but they're both kind of tight-lipped and we see a lot of them driving around and sort of gradually getting to know each other 
Whereas Sully comes out with like, here's all this stuff I've learned. Like we're going to be a team. Um, and it's, I don't know if it's like so much a social contract, but it's kind of just like a, um, it speaks to the dangers of, of, um, on both sides of offering so much up without any kind of discussion of the expectations of what this interpersonal relationship is going to be. And also on Marin's part, the dangers of, um, receiving all that information and an intimacy without uh maybe first clarifying or getting a better sense of like the high stakes of what being privy to this person's intimacy can mean yeah there's a a question of so sully offers her without any yeah, like she doesn't ask him to mentor her or to try to teach her a way of being in the world. Um, he offers that up, but he also offers kind of in conjunction with that, like you can come with me, essentially. Like we can literally like live on the road together, um, move about the world together and be some kind of uh, family unit, right? Um it's unclear i don't think it's supposed to be a sexual relationship that he wants but i think he does want like some kind of devotion or promise or allegiance or something but you're exactly right zachary which is like the problem is that he doesn't make he offers her this future this possibility um with a lot of expectation attached to it that he does not make clear yeah, and I think in the film's closing sequence, um, in which, and we'll kind of piece this together as we go, but Sully physically assaults Marin, we see him being very, almost even the way he positions himself on top of her is very sexual and, and very violent. And I think it's something where it's, as much as he talks about his control and his knowledge of his own urges, like, and almost exclusively through what he says about his eating, and we see that a lot of that doesn't necessarily bear scrutiny. I think also his intentions with Marin, whether he, certainly whether he admits it or not, and maybe even like on a degree that he's not fully conscious of, he's looking for a sexual intimacy that, um, you know, for various reasons is completely improbable and, and manifests in a kind of violence in the film's closing. Yeah, he he meets her and he approaches this this thing of eating and this way of being that they both inhabit as if he can rationalize it, that he's pure ration, he can have rules. Um, uh, this is the, one of the first things he says, you don't have to be worried about me, I got rules. Rule number one, and the first one is never, ever, ever eat another eater. It's his fight club. It's, <laughs> it's his fight club, yeah. Um, but he starts with like pure rationality and then it turns out that that's not how he operates at all or perhaps something about meeting Marin breaks him but um I'll break it down for this is a guy who talks about we're gonna be a family and look out for each other and he no insinuates he insinuates things. these things and while he's saying all this right behind him is the vehicle that he's rolled up in and it's like a repair van <laughs> that I'm almost certain this guy's not running a repair service. I suspect it's part of his way of eluding uh, suspicion is like if he goes from town to town 
and is ostensibly like a electrician. Fewer people will wonder about the strange character inhabiting this or that humble abode. Yeah, and he refers to himself in the third person. Yes. Which is upsetting to Marin at the very least. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's disconcerting to, I think, to the audience generally. And a very Freudian kind of aspect to Sully is how much of both his physical preparation of food and in when he assaults Marin at the end, uh, he has like a hunting style kind of knife that he wields and has on him at all times that seems to like speak to a certain amount of like physical impotency. Mm-hmm. But he, um, so he kind of relies on uh, a more, um, getting back into the abject, like, like exterior to himself. He kind of has to, he has to reach out for certain tools and weapons because he's, he's not as self-sustaining as he makes himself out to be, that he's actually quite dependent on both these other people that he's always alienating himself from, but also on, uh, on a, a kind of like uh, a kind of violent aspect to enforce what he wants. Yeah, and we can. Um, there's one I've alluded a little bit to, like mouths and eating and kissing, and what is the sexual relationship between Marin and Lee. Um, but there's one moment in the film where we know that penetration occurs, and it is it is with the knife that that knife that same knife. I didn't yeah. even think of that. Um, so we will talk about that as we get to the end. Yeah, and so what happens after, um, just kind of like moving, moving with the plot, she uh, gets up in the morning and decides she doesn't want to take up this offer. Um, we see what he's reading, so we know she's a big reader. She's reading The Hobbit, I think, at this point, and she sees that he is reading, is it Dubliners? Yeah, he's reading High Modernism. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's part of, like, it's not insignificant. She thinks about, she really takes seriously if she wants to um, kind of hitch herself to this this person and to um, try to live according to his morality and try to live with this guy. And she's kind of uneasy. Why do you refer to yourself in the third person? And ultimately in the morning she decides that she's going to keep going on. She's going to make her bus transfer um, there are, this is supposed, it's like, if you look at the trailers for this film, it's a horror film, and then there are, like, only a few scenes that are scary, and one of them is the eating scene, but even that's not super scary, um, it's kind of gross, but it's also really complex, um, and then one of the, I guess, eerie scenes is her bus is leaving town, and he's standing out in the yard looking at her, and his expression is... It's hard to read, but it's clear that he, even though it's like an offer and he says, you know, it's your choice and it's up to you. And, um, suppose like we, that's when we know that there was an expectation that this wasn't a pure, a pure offer, a pure gift that comes with no stakes attached to be kind of dirty and about it. Yeah. I find the really eerie detail in that scene is throughout the film. He always has his, uh, 
long hair in a very neat braid. And in that scene, when the bus is driving away, even though he has his hat on, we see that his hair's untied and kind of blowing in the wind. So like, it's hard for me not to imagine him realizing she's left the house and like just throwing his hat and jacket on and running for the bus, uh, which until the end, he again, kind of been speaking to like a sort of like impotency about him. Like we don't see Sully do that much physically until the very end. Like he's kind of, he eats things that are already dead. He moves slowly. He's got a very meek, soft-spoken way about him. So the fact that um, the implied rush of him, and even in, his, in the sense of like he's already there as the bus is pulling away, we get the feeling that he, he got there at a pretty good rate. Uh, it's all off-screen. There's something kind of haunting about that. It's a bit like, you know, the you, Santa Claus comes at night, but you never see him arrive, maybe. Like, he's just already left the toys. Yeah, I think that's a great, a great way to, to think about it and to think about, like, they are two cannibals haunting the house of this poor woman who is dying alone yeah. in the house, waiting for her to die. So in they pain, can... presumably. yeah. Um, the one scene of her where it becomes clear that they're waiting for her to die is, is quite unnerving, um, for sure. The, the camera doesn't stay there for a long time, but it's very, it reminds us, um, that these are, are cannibals who are, who are in the house who are going to eat her, for sure, and that she is a person who was once alive, um, even if they're waiting for a natural death. Um, the camera doesn't want us to forget that she was once alive, absolutely, um, so they're kind of haunting her house, and then the way that Sully haunts Marin is by being able to smell her, and and she she knows that, right? It's hard for her to actually get away from him, um, because he can smell her, like, he says, from the yard, like, presumably across the town. Um, and then that kind of, like, how could you look in his eyes as the bus drives away? Yeah, he's um, not happy. He's not happy. Um, and then at her next stop, she is in a little store and she is um, looking at something on the shelf. It's, we get some glimpses of the products on the shelves to remind us this is this is like 1980 whatever. Was she um, looking at shampoo or something? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's like the shampoo labels for sure. Um, it's a little general store and we see her and she's kind of like she's giving a look to or kind of like she she can she can she knows she can smell probably um lee the cannibal who's also kind of smelling her and they're at a distance kind of kind of measuring each other up um um, yeah so we see this scene and all of the performances in this film we should say are um, like there aren't very many characters really. There's kind of the three main ones are three. So we've Mark Rylance playing Sully, uh, Taylor Russell, who I didn't know before this film, but I'm, I now want to see everything she's in because she's powerhouse. Um, and then Timothy Chalamet, probably the, I think the biggest name. If you watch the first trailer for the film, you think it's like all about Timothy Chalamet, but really it's Marin's story. Yeah. Also, I guess the, connection between the director and Chalamet as like now suddenly like a, a star and a filmmaker with a rapport, like since uh, the success of uh, call me by your name probably attracted some people who might otherwise not be down for a cannibal movie. Sure. Or he might not know who Taylor Russell is, but would come to see another yeah. like Timothy Chalamet in another um, 
Luca Guadagnino film for sure. Yeah. Um, but this is our introduction to Chalamet's character, a Kentucky boy whose uh, fashion sense makes him an outsider. I think paints him as queer and maybe even gender queer. I was going to say there's like a certain kind of androgyny to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I want to own. I would wear every single <laughs> piece of clothing that Timothy Chalamet wears in this film. I feel like Marin is also has a great. Uh, a really great style as well. Yes, um, I agree. And actually, uh, Chalamet's got a really, or Lee, I guess, has a really cool kind of Robert Maplethorpe style, like uh, like his hair all kind of converges like a, the top of an ice cream cone in the middle of his forehead. <laughs> He's got a, a half mullet, half mohawk. Yeah. Floppy, grown out, like very punk. It was once um, maybe pink, but now it's kind of faded to an orangey red. It's like an orange sherbet. Yeah, it's really good. Um, But they suss each other out at this little grocery store, and this is where we get an introduction to Chalamet. So uh, I think this is, I think we're going to describe this scene and then... Um, give a big ellipses and make this a two-parter because we have so much to say. But what what happens in this scene? How do they how do they get to know each other as cannibals? Well, as anyone who's ever been to a general store in a small town knows, there's inevitably a drunken guy going around catcalling women and raising hell. And uh, Marin tells him to because Marin first tries to suggest that he leaves this woman alone that he's harassing. And then Timothy Chalamet as Lee takes it upon himself to uh, give the guy a headbutt, which doesn't seem to phase the guy so much as piss him off. And then they go off to scrap it out in the parking lot, like, you know, two sailors. And Marin sort of keeps her distance, and there's a time lapse where the sun's going down, and she leaves the store and comes sneaking around to see what Lee, whose name we don't know yet, but it's the Timothy Chalamet character Lee to see what he's up to and what has happened. And Lee is leaving a, uh, like an abandoned kind of looking discarded building with some of the drunken assailants clothing in hand. He's got his hat. He's got his hat on. (laughs) And, uh, Marin kind of low key confronts, at least approaches him and, lets on that she knows he's an eater and he clearly knows that she's an eater. He offers her to, if she wants, she can go in and eat what's left. And from there, the plot just, you know, within now the wheels are really moving. If we weren't already intrigued by what was going to happen in this movie. Yeah. They kind of find each other and sort of unspokenly decide to move forward together. And it's very, it's very sweet. Like, they're cannibals, and Lee has just eaten a guy. Um, and then these two outsiders, she says, I smelled you. I didn't know you, I could do that. That's, like, a revelation for her. Um, yeah, and they decide they're going to be a team together without really saying too much about it. Yeah, while maintaining, at least for the first couple scenes, like, a kind of tension. Like, things get sort of idyllic uh, pretty quick, at least as far as, like, their comfort with one another. But... Um, yeah, you, you get that this is two very strong personalities, but both in need of a, a true, you know, bosom friend, as it were. Yeah, and, and this is the beginning of, we don't really have fully, fully fleshed out yet. Oh, um, no. I know, oh no, um, Lee's 
morality, who he eats and why he eats them and how he decides. But uh, Marin is certainly finds something um, attractive in, well, he's eaten this guy who was harassing someone, right? He's eaten someone who clearly has done a social wrong. Yes, although she is uh, still a little peeved when she suspects that Lee has taken the guy's wallet. Yeah. So we see already there's like, it's not cut and dry, it's not black and white. It's She's acknowledging from the outset the horrible complexity of needing to live this way. Absolutely. And there's, um, he speaks the line, everyone's got their rules, that's not one of mine. Yes. Um, and prior to that, when they're in the store, he speaks my favorite line of maybe the whole film, which is, I'm not with the store, but I will escort you out of it. I don't know why it's so good. It's a good one. Yeah. My favorite line is still, surprise! A wonderful surprise! (laughs) Which is just more so about... Uh, a character actor with really great delivery than the line itself. But yeah, the orderly in the hospital who gets three lines total and does beautiful things with all of them. Has a real presence, as they say. Yeah, so, okay, we that is... Uh, they start on... They embark on a road trip together, essentially. So this is, like, very much... It's a cannibal film. It's a love film. It's a film about being... Othered, and it's a road trip film. So we will pick up in part two of this episode and talk about the hijinks that these two young people get into um, as, yeah, as two young cannibals in love, question mark, dun dun dun. And you get a seventh week. Yeah, you get seven weeks of, of CanCon season one. All right, join us next time for part two of Don's and All. Arrivederci, friends. <laughs>